It's 10.45 p.m. on the night of December 15, 1980, when Paul Woods sees it. Two men are rushing toward the black pickup truck sitting idly at the stoplight. One rushes to the passenger side while the other pushes his way into the driver's side. The woman inside begins to scream in fear, but it's too late. They disappear into the night before anyone can do anything. The following morning, around 5 a.m. in the 1100 block of Broan Avenue, local fire departments respond to the truck that has been set on fire. The only thing inside the truck is a nurse's uniform. It's here when friends and co-workers of Melanie Uribe start to piece together something that has gone terribly wrong for their friend, a 31-year-old single mother and nurse who never showed up for work the night before. Miles away, a 32-year-old woman who has never met Melanie cannot shake the feeling that she knows what happened to the now-missing woman after having a vision of her whereabouts. And despite having no proof or any ties to her, she sets on a mission to find her, knowing far too well that the story she's going to tell will make her sound completely nuts. Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. Thirty-one-year-old Melanie Uribe worked at the hospital as a nurse in Pacoima, California. And on December 15, 1980, she would be driving her black pickup truck to work the night shift at the hospital. But she would never show up for work, which was highly unlike Melanie. She was often responsible and punctual, as described by her co-workers. Already worried about their friend and co-worker, their worries would increase when they discovered that the following morning, so December 16, 1980, around 5 a.m., that local firefighters had been called to the 1100 block of Bromont Avenue, where a truck had been set on fire. One of her friends would report her missing, certain that something had gone terribly wrong for the young mother and nurse. Local police would begin to set up search crews, with the local media reporting that searches were beginning to take place in the homes around the area, looking for Melanie. Miles away, 32-year-old Etta Smith would hear of this news on the radio, while she was working as a shipping clerk at the Lockheed Aerospace Plant. But something strange happened when Etta heard the radio talk about the house searches. Etta would claim that a voice would tell her that Melanie wasn't in a house, and suddenly, as if she were watching a movie, a vision would flash in her head. The vision was that of a canyon and curving road. There would be a dirt path that led to something white, a hill behind it. Immediately, she believed that the white was possibly Melanie. Since Melanie was a nurse, maybe the white she saw was white from her nurse's uniform. Etta didn't know the name of the road she saw in her vision, but she believed that she knew where it was and how to get there. It was 3 p.m., and for the next half an hour until she was done with work, Etta continued to sit and think about Melanie. The sense was strong that she needed to tell someone about what she thought she saw. 
As Etta Smith drove home from work, she continued to have an inner battle. At one point, telling herself she just needed to go home, and at the other, telling herself she needed to stop at the police station. Not knowing for sure whether Melanie Uribe was alive or dead, Ada knew she had to do something, and so she decided to stop. Despite being a skeptic, Detective Lee Ryan, who spoke to Ada Smith that day, listened closely, asking if maybe she could pinpoint the location she believed that Melanie was on a map. Ada would point out a part of the San Fernando Valley, a place called Lopez Canyon. Detectives would promise Ada that they would check it out, However, when Etta left, she couldn't quite shake the feeling that she needed to check out the canyon herself. The sense of urgency in finding the missing woman was so strong that she needed to take action. So Etta would return home, pack up her two children, 9 and 10, and her niece, who was 20, and they would drive into Lopez Canyon, searching for Melanie. Etta would keep her eyes out for anything that reminded her of her vision, anything that stood out. Soon, she would spot fresh tire tracks. Getting out of her vehicle, she felt the compulsion to touch the tracks, to where she said she felt trauma. She knew she was in the right area. It was Etta's daughter who had noticed something white in the brush. As the group walked the dirt path, they would see it. The nude body of Melanie Uribe, wearing white nurse's shoes. Etta, her niece, and her two children would quickly run back to the vehicle and travel back down the canyon. As they're driving back down the canyon, a police cruiser just happened to be driving up the canyon, and she would flag them down to report that she had found a dead body. Melanie Uribe had a horrible death. She had been robbed, sexually assaulted, and beaten to death. And police quickly had a suspect in the case. At a Smith. Confused at how Etta could have possibly known exactly where to find Melanie, police quickly brought Etta in for questioning. They would keep her in interrogation for over 10 hours, one detective even tossing a chair and becoming belligerent. They also deprived Etta of food or water, hoping she'd break. Etta's children were even brought in for questioning. Ada would realize that she was seen as a suspect and offered to take a polygraph, in which she would pass, but detectives had told her she had failed, and they thought she was trying to lie by holding her breath. Detectives weren't really sure whether or not they believed that Ada committed the murder, but they had high suspicion she had something to do with it, and Ada Smith was arrested the following morning for the murder of Melanie Uribe. 24 hours after the discovery of Melanie's body, a tip would come into the station from a woman who claimed that she had the murder weapon. Knowing the details were not published, the detective was shocked when the woman on the other end of the phone call told him that she had the rock, which was the size of a bowling ball, used in the murder. Autopsy results would verify that Melanie was indeed killed with a rock. The caller never gave up her name. On December 20th, 1980, a police informant also came forward with information regarding the case. According to the informant, a local man in the neighborhood was bragging about the murder. The man, a 17-year-old named Norman Willis, was quickly brought in for questioning, and he almost immediately confessed that he and two other men, 
20-year-old Lewis Morgan and 21-year-old Spencer Nelson were responsible for Melanie Uribe's murder. All three men were arrested and Etta Smith was finally released after serving four days in jail. On the night of December 15, 1980, all three men had decided that they had wanted to rob someone. And unfortunately, Melody's murder was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Before the men even drove her truck into the canyon, they would stop to sexually assault her, then drive into the canyon and walk her up the dirt path with Lewis Morgan planning on only tying her up. As he turned to retrieve something to tie her with, he suddenly heard a thud and turned to see Spencer Nelson hitting Melanie over the head with a rock. It was later speculated that Spencer, who had previously spent time in prison for rape, had decided he wasn't going to let another victim live. It was also determined later that the woman who had reported she had the murder weapon was, in fact, Spencer's girlfriend. All three men were convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Melanie Uribe. Etta Smith claimed she was never apologized to for her treatment from the police department. And a year after she's released from jail, she sued the LAPD for false imprisonment for $750,000, later being awarded $26,184. And I would also later claim that as a child, she had instances where she saw or felt certain things, but that her mother had told her not to tell anyone. And if Etta had any other visions that happened after that day in December of 1980, she hasn't told anyone. As always, I want to know your thoughts on this case. Do you think that Ada did have a real vision or do you believe in psychics? If you haven't yet, join our Facebook group. It's facebook.com backslash this story is not podcast. And if you have a story suggestion, whether it is a personal story that you want to share with the show or a story you want to hear it's this story is nuts at gmail.com. Come back next week for an all new episode of This Story is Nuts, which drops every single Wednesday at midnight. And until then, stay nutty, my friends.
This Story's Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.